Hi, Lakeside. Sorry, I wanted to do an awkward pause there. This week, the devotional instructional manual was really, really cool. I read an article by Shelley Frost, and she had a great chart in there that showed the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's some forecasting going on in the Old Testament that's pointing to some familiar stories in the New Testament. It was really neat. Well done, Shelley Frost. Anyways, um, it's had me read the New Testament with a new set of eyes. Really cool. So this week, um, I totally understood what Pastor Brad was talking about when he said that the Bible is a love story to us. Because um, when reading Luke chapter 7, uh, it talked about the woman who was a huge sinner and had quite a past. And everyone said nasty things about her. How she came to God and kissed his feet and wept. And he just basically forgave her for everything that she's ever done. He just looked at her with love and mercy and told her that she is forgiven. And it's just amazing to me what a wonderful and compassionate God that is because I could never just forgive someone who's done so much to me. And that's basically what we do is we keep hurting him and he keeps forgiving. Isn't that amazing? Hey guys, what's up? It's Dylan. This week I've just been super busy and um, getting my Bible time in has been a has been actually really important to me this week. Um, it's helped me just kind of settle down and relax and uh, get into God's Word more. And just uh, every time I do this and pray through it, uh, pray through my scripture readings, it's just um, it's been a huge blessing in, in my day and uh, it's helped me out quite a bit. Um, so that's what I've been doing lately. I hope you guys are doing well and uh, really loving the series. So I'll catch you guys next week, all right? See you then. Hey, can we just give a hand to some of these guys that have been helping us out with the videos? It's great. If you see them around, pat them on the back, say thank you. You can give Mike an awkward stare, you know, that'd be great. Hey, if you're new here, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors, and it's my privilege to be sharing with you tonight. Uh, years ago, when my daughter was only eight years old, uh, we moved, and she started a new school, and she was having kind of a rough time. There was actually this girl that was sort of picking on her, and... Um, we were trying to address that problem, but I decided to take her out on a father-daughter date. And it was great because she loves pasta, I love pasta, it makes it work. And we're there and we're eating, and I decide that I'm just going to start to encourage her. And so I just started telling her, you know, Kayla, I love you, and, and uh, you're so special to me. And I, I, I don't remember what I said, but I was just, you know, really affirming her. And I noticed that as... I was talking to her that at one point she completely stopped eating. Her body became really still and she was just staring at me like she was mesmerized by these words that I was saying. Like they were kind of falling over her like a waterfall. She was soaking it up like a sponge. And as I was talking to her, it was almost as if her eyes were saying, keep going, daddy, just keep going. And you know, it was one of those moments where as a parent, because there's a lot of messy moments as parents and you fail all the time, where I'm like, okay, I think I got it right that day. Words are powerful, aren't they? They're transformational. I like how John Ortberg, one of my favorite Bible teachers, says that he says, where there is love, where there's relationship, there's words. 
And so, is it any wonder that so many for so long have treasured this thing that we call the Bible? Christianity believes that God actually used words. That he spoke into human history, into time and space. And that he reaches out with these words into a relationship of love that he desires to have with all of humanity. And if you're just joining us, if you're the first time here, we're in week four of a five-week series called Text, where we're, we're kind of talking a lot about this library of books called the Bible. And we're diving in and we're looking at it from different uh, directions. And one of the things that we notice is that it's life-changing for us as we do this. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, that the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Because if God actually has spoken, and, and if words are powerful and they transform us in the context of a loving relationship, then the Bible is life-changing as we engage with it. And I think that what we have to admit is that it takes faith to believe that the Bible is God's Word. Now, it's a remarkable book all on its own, produced over 1,500 years from 40-plus authors. It's, it's got uh, one major theme with an overarching story, the manuscript record, and the, you can look into the manuscripts. There's a great book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In fact, I'm going to be throwing out a lot of resources tonight. Don't worry about writing them down. I'm going to post some stuff on the table, so you want to sign up on the table. But it's a great book, and it's a great resource for you to dig in on your own and kind of look at the manuscript record. The Bible is the most amazing thing that comes out of antiquity. There's nothing else like it. And you don't have to have a lot of faith to believe that the Bible is remarkable. Many people believe that already. But you do have to have faith to believe that it's the Word of God. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You see, faith isn't just this idea that we make this intellectual assent to a list of doctrines or a list of rules, or if I believe this, then that settles it and it's all done. Faith isn't non-dynamic. Faith is actually much more than that. It's sort of a mysterious gift that God gives us. And I'm not sure how it works, but one definition of faith is that faith is an is an active dynamic in a relationship that causes love, intimacy, and trust to grow between two people, in this case, between God and us. You see, whenever we find faith in the Scriptures, there's always a story attached to it. Even in Hebrews 11, which talks all about faith and gives us the definition of faith right from the beginning, and then you'll see all sorts of characters throughout the Scriptures that lived that faith out. It's that dynamic thing that is worked out between two people. Holly and I were out in Bodega Bay last weekend, and I performed a wedding. And as I normally do, I I stand there, and I help the couple say their vows. And it's beautiful. It's emotional. They're smiling. They're excited about this journey that they're going to have together. And they're making the most amazing promises in the world. And, and, and they're doing it by faith. It's just the beginnings of faith because they have no idea what's in store for them in their marriage. They don't know what life's going to throw at them. If you've been married for a while, you know what I'm talking about. It's difficult. But if they 
work it out by faith in this dynamic relationship that they have, their marriage will be beautiful. And so it is with us and God as we come to his word by faith and we begin to work it out and practice this relationship. He transforms our lives into something beautiful. But the challenge is how, isn't it? How do we do all this? And how do we take something so ancient and so weird and so difficult and apply it to our lives? And how do we look at it as authoritative for us in our lives? When we talk about authority, it helps us right from the beginning to, as we read the scriptures, to understand that the scriptures always point to the fact that God is the one who is in authority. Jesus said it himself, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So when we say the authority of the scriptures, it's sort of a shorthand way of saying God's authority. One of the things that we see right from the beginning from the New Testament writers is the particular way that they affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. Jesus came along and he said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. His followers did the same thing. Peter wrote at one point, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament writers overwhelmingly, as you read through, support the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and one of the things that's, that's important to note is that the books of the New Testament in the early church were widely recognized as from God and as having authority for a few simple criteria. One is that they could all be traced back to somebody that was an eyewitness, that either knew Jesus personally, or like in the case of Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, Peter kind of dictated to him. And so there was a very close relationship there. And the other reason is that they were always consistent with the known, te- known teachings of Jesus. In fact, a hundred years before Constantine, who something, some people believe that somehow Constantine, in about early 300s, Somehow he got into cahoots with the Pope, and they kind of made up, well, this is what is going to be in the Bible, and this is what's not going to be in the Bible. But a hundred years before that, one of the early church followers by the name of Origins wrote this. He said, the four Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the only undisputed ones in the whole church of God throughout the world. And so from very early on, and through all of the early church councils, what was going on was that the leaders of the church were recognizing what was already true in the wide church, that these writings were already accepted, they were already obeyed and looked at as from God and authoritative in their lives. It it didn't happen because a Roman emperor came along. There's a great Edinburgh professor by the name of William Barclay, and he said, it is a simple truth to say that the New Testament books became canonical or became official Because no one could stop them from doing so. And so the point here is that our faith, which it takes faith, is a reasonable faith. 
And we stand on this history of thousands and thousands of years. And there's a whole bunch of things that I don't have time to tell you tonight about why they chose these particular books. Because there were groups in the early church that thought it ought to be different. There were the Gnostics who believed, oh, it it needs to be just one gospel. There's a secret message. We're going to call it the Gospel of Thomas, which actually wasn't even written by Thomas, but that's another story. And so we need to keep this thing very, very limited. Or you have the Marcionites who wanted to throw everything that was of Jewish origin out of the Scriptures. So throw out the Old Testament. We'll keep just the Gospel of Luke because it was written to the Greeks, but we'll throw out the Hebrew parts. And we'll keep just Paul, but we'll throw out the Jewish parts of that too. And, and so you had these people in the early church that were always kind of fighting. And one of the reasons why they finally had to land on this was because of all the heresies in the early church. You can look up Docetism, which was another thing where they believed that Christ only appeared to be physically human. And so there's all sorts of heresies going on in the scriptures. But the key here is that we walk by faith in this. And we walk in this relationship where we begin to progress forward. And we have to do it ourselves. Brad said a few weeks ago that don't take my word for it. Go out and you have to try this. You have to experiment with it. You have to test it. And so it's by faith that we do all of this. And as we do, I believe that we'll begin to grow. And as we read the scriptures, we're going to start to find some very strange and puzzling, sometimes esoteric things that we kind of look at and we say, what in the world does that mean? And how does that even make sense for my life? How do I apply the scriptures to my life, this ancient, old, dusty book? And why should I believe that it's authoritative for myself? And so what I want to do is I want to give you a definition. And then after that, I want to sort of give you some lenses or a way to read the Bible. And so here's the definition. It comes from Janine Brown, who was actually a professor of mine at Bethel Theological Seminary in Minnesota. It's one of the best definitions of the scriptures that I've ever read. She says the Bible is culturally located divine discourse for the shaping of the Christian community. It's culturally located. In other words, the Bible has a cultural location and it's not ours. And we can struggle with that. Now, the rest of the stuff we kind of get, it's divine discourse. It's this conversation between us and God. And as we read the scriptures, God makes himself available to us. And as we study and as we memorize and we pray through, we begin to make ourselves available to God. And this relationship is built. It's a discourse. Words are going back and forth. And it's for the shaping of the Christian community. The way that we would say it at Lakeside is that it's transformational. Because we want to see as many people as possible transformed into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. And it's written to the church. It's to fire us up. It's to shape us. But it's mission-shaped. In other words, we don't read this, read this, read this, and then close it and do nothing. We read the Scriptures because we're on a mission. And we do it as we go on that mission. There's this sort of this false dichotomy that i got to do all this study before I can ever do anything. Or you got to do the inreach first, and then you can do the outreach. Or you got to do the outreach first, and then you can do the inreach we do them together. It's like a, it's like a bicycle where you got to pedal with both feet. And so as we go and as we read the scriptures and we do this divine discourse with God, he shapes his people to transform the world. But it's that cultural location one that 
that gets us. It's that one that's really, really difficult. And I believe that one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because we live in a completely different world than the, than the text. There's the text world, or the, the world of the author who wrote the text, and then there's our world. And what we see is this huge distance, these gaps that exist. There's historical gaps, and there's cultural gaps. There's linguistic gaps. There's worldview gaps. We don't always see the world the way that the ancients saw the world. And then there's the gap of human imperfection, right? There was a professor that once said, hey, one-third of what I'm telling you is wrong, but the only problem is, is I don't know which one-third it is. I mean, we're just not completely perfect. And so part of the goal of studying the scriptures is to try to close that gap and be able to ask the question, how does that ancient strange thing apply to my life? How do I work that out? And one of the best ways to do this is, begin, is to begin to look at the scriptures through the lens of story. One great resource for you is a book by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright I've called him the Bono of the theological world. In 500 years, people are going to be talking about N.T. Wright. He's the foremost New Testament theologian of our day. And he's written many, many books. And one of the books is called Scripture and the Authority of God. And I would encourage you to pick it up. It's very accessible. It's not that long. But he talks about a five-act hermeneutic. In other words, he talks about one of the ways to, to understand the Bible or to read it is to look at it like a story with five chapters. And so I just kind of want to walk through this. I've talked about this a little bit before. I've written a little bit about it. But I think it is absolutely key for us to understand how the scriptures apply to our lives and how they're authoritative in our lives. And so chapter 1 is all about creation. It's kind of chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, a little bit into chapter 3. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it gives us this paradigm or this worldview that everything was created with intentionality by God. And he didn't just desert it all, but he actually inhabits the creation and wants to have a relationship. And he says, everything is good. Everything is very good, especially people. Did anybody go outside today? Is it just a beautiful day or what? I mean, don't these days just make you feel alive? We're moving into the fall. It's a little bit cooler. My wife likes that. She wants to wear sweaters. She's done with the heat of summer. When we were out at this wedding in Bodega Bay, we were on this hillside and there was some time between the ceremony and the reception and so we just sat in these chairs and looked out at the ocean as the sun was setting and it was amazing there's something authoritative about that that all is beautiful and we're here for a reason it gives us our identity and our purpose it didn't all just happen by accident That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the fall. And the theme of the fall is really all the way through the scriptures, but it's really strongly emphasized from about halfway through chapter 3 of Genesis all the way sort of to the very end of chapter 11. And everything begins to unravel during this time. Marriage gets completely messed up. Family dynamics get messed up. There's a murder. Things aren't going so well between Cain and Abel. There's a guy named Lamech, and Lamech becomes a murderer, and he's the first polygamist. Marriage gets destroyed. Uh, There's things like oppression and shame and manipulation, especially the poor and the needy and the weak, and women are oppressed. We see this going on during this time. And God begins to grieve. He begins to grow sad. 
And it reminds us that, or at least if we see it through the lens of the scriptures, it tells us that it wasn't just by accident that things got messed up. It actually gives us a worldview. It says that there's a problem with the human heart. And no amount of, av- of advancement or technology or anything else is going to change that because there's a sin problem. And there's a heart condition that needs to be changed. About halfway through that section of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 6, it says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This, this gets into our thoughts, into our mind. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. One of the questions that we're left with at the end of chapter 2 is how is God going to deal with his grief? How is he going to deal with this problem? Is he going to scrap it all? And what we'll find in the subsequent chapters is, no, he's not, because he has a rescue plan. And so we move into chapter 3, which begins right around Genesis 12. And God takes this one person named Abram, and he changes his name to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. He enters into this personal relationship, and he says, I'm going to bless the entire world through your seed, through your offspring. And he becomes the father of Isaac. And then there's Joseph, who becomes the father of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then 400 years later, we see the law coming to Moses. And for the first time, things begin to get written down. God is communicating with words, and people are writing things down. And this is where it gets really, really confusing, because the law happens to say some very weird things. Things Like in Leviticus chapter 11, listen to this. It says, of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, which apparently is a lizard, and the chameleon. And that is just weird. First of all, it's weird because I wouldn't eat those things anyway. I mean, I'm sort of a picky eater, but that's just some strange stuff. Why in the world does God do something like that? Or in Deuteronomy, or in Leviticus 13, it says that a man who has lost his hair and is bald, he is clean. Okay, it works for Brad and Steve Wright, but I want to keep my hair. I don't know. That's just some strange stuff. Or how about Deuteronomy 14 tells us that any creature in the water that does not have fins or scales, you may not eat. How many of you guys just scrapped this one? Any shrimp lovers, you know, lobster lovers. My wife loves seafood. I don't. It's a big old thing. We'll talk about it later. It's great. But there are some strange things in there. But how about the law that says you shall not murder? We take that one pretty seriously, don't we? Even if we do have some relatives that drive us nuts sometimes, I mean, we take that law pretty seriously. Well, Christian theologians, ever since the Reformation, and a guy named John Calvin, have believed that when you read the Old Testament law, part of trying to read it is to distinguish between three different types of laws. For example, they identified some laws that they call civil laws. The nation of Israel was learning how to become a nation. God was training them. They didn't have a constitution like us. They needed to know how do we react to one another? How do we react to the, our neighbors around us? And so there were property laws and sentencing laws and there were foreign affair laws. But now, in our day and age, the church has gone out into all the world. 
So we don't apply those laws that they, they apply. We may apply the spirit behind it. I'll talk about that in a minute. But we don't just take it a one for one and go, okay, we'll just kind of rigidly apply that in some legalistic way. Then there were the ritual laws that the nation of Israel had. And the whole sacrificial system was ritual or ceremonial laws. But once Jesus came, he fulfilled the entire sacrificial system. All of that was meant to point to Jesus. And so we don't go backwards in the story and start doing sacrifices again. That would be like reciting the lines in a play from earlier in the play. The audience would be completely confused. In, every, in, G, in Jesus, everything has been fulfilled. And then there's the dietary laws and the cleanliness laws and all sorts of things. At one point, Jesus said to his disciples, Don't you know that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And then Mark will give this little commentary that says, In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so he kind of wipes the table. But as we look back at that, one of the questions we have to ask is, why did they have those laws? Some were to point to Jesus. A lot of the dietary laws and the cleanliness laws were meant to teach the nation of Israel the difference between an impure heart and a pure heart. All of them were pointing somewhere. And so what we do when we read the scriptures that were pointed at the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, is we have to ask, what's the value behind that law? Or what's the ethic behind that law? What was God trying to communicate? And then what we do is we go, what would it look like to apply that same value or ethic in our day? It may look a lot different in our day than it did in their day. And that's how we kind of can carry these forward. Jesus said, that our hearts ought to be pure. That's very authoritative. But we would apply that a little bit differently in our day than they did in their day. And then there's the moral laws. Basically, love God and love people. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we still try to obey these, don't we? Now, sometimes the moral laws are set in strange ways as well. For example, in Deuteronomy 23, it says, When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Instead, he says, Leave what remains for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. In another part in the Old Testament law, it says, Don't, basically, in modern language, don't drive your tractor all the way to the end of the field. (laughs) You know, leave some of that around the edges of your field. Don't take everything off the fruit trees. Don't take everything out of the field because there's poor and needy among you. What's the spirit? What's the heart behind those laws? It's generosity. God's basically saying, hey, instead of trying to get a little bit richer, trying to advance yourself just a little bit more, say no to that and actually say yes to being generous towards somebody that is needy. How could we apply that in our day? So much of reading the scripture is finding it in its cultural location. And Brad's going to continue this next week with a lot about context and genre and so forth. 
But since we live in that culture, again, we don't just do a one-to-one sort of legalistic application. To read the scriptures in a literal way doesn't mean that you just copy what was there. It means you take the truth literally and you apply it to your lives. And so we don't live in those chapters, but we learn from them. Now, some people will say some things like, doesn't the Bible support slavery? Because there's all sorts of laws about slaves, and it seems pretty wacky to me when I read it. Or doesn't the Bible support the oppression of women? Well, once again, we have to go back and we have to look at its cultural context. What kind of world did the ancient Israelites live in in the ancient Near East? To not speak about slavery or to not have slavery would have been unheard of. I mean, it was just the norm. But when we look at how God told Israel to treat slaves, we start to see this redemptive trajectory that starts to take off. It's like an airplane that's just taking off. The ancient Israelites had to respect their slaves. They had to give them a day off. After seven years, they were to go free. The owners of slaves had to give them money to help them out as they went free. And we see this trajectory taking off of liberation. And it's an amazing thing to watch as you read through the scriptures. You get to the New Testament and you'll find the Apostle Paul and he writes about slaves as well. But he says, hey, masters, you better treat your slaves with respect because you both have the same master. And he kind of starts to put it on equal footing. And then he writes to his friend Philemon, who is a slave owner. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, and he ran away, and he somehow got hooked up with Paul. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon, and he says, You know what? I know he's your slave, but I think you ought to let him go free because he's my brother. And we see that trajectory of liberation just moving forward, and we go all the way through the history of the church, and people have used the scriptures in the past to somehow support slavery, and I think they've completely read it out of context. And you get to see the Methodists and the Quakers and people like William Wilberforce who work for the emancipation of all people. How could we continue that trajectory forward in our day? What do we do with things like racism? How do we handle those things? We're to move it forward. And that's how, you know, we have to improvise with the Holy Spirit. I talked about this last May. We have to work with him and pray that through. You know, with women, it's the same thing. Some people believe that Galatians 3, where Paul says there's neither slave nor free nor male nor female, but all are one before the foot of the cross. All are one before Christ. Some people believe that that's the first egalitarian statement in all of literature. How did Jesus treat women? How do we take that trajectory and continue to move it forward in our day? Now, with some things, the trajectory sort of goes in a little bit different direction, like with sexual ethics, for example. In the ancient Near East, anything went sexually. It's a matter of record. It's a matter of history. And especially for men. But as we read through the Old Testament law, there starts to be restrictions on it. And you get down to the time of Jesus, and Jesus says, haven't you read the law? Haven't you understood that the man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus said, guys, if you just look at a woman with lust, you're messing up in your heart. There is, a, there is something wrong. You've treated her improperly. How can we carry that kind of ethic forward and this is the job of bible study this is the job of of living out the scriptures right this is the adventure that we're on as we dig through this and we try to see our own hearts transformed and then we're able to help others to be transformed as well
But it's so important to get that because if you don't get this part of it, and if you don't work it out, and it's messy, and it's difficult, and sometimes the civil law runs into the ritual law, which runs into the moral law, and it gets confusing, and I get confused all the time. But if we don't get a handle and, and try to work at it, then we'll never understand the scriptures. And we'll take things and we'll either ignore them, we'll either just get mad and throw it away and say, I just refuse to understand it. Or we'll apply it legalistically in a very harmful way that is not liberating for ourselves or others. And all of this leads to the climax of the overarching narrative of the story, and that's Jesus, and that's chapter 4. It's the life of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, who comes onto the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled. I have fulfilled everything. At one point after his resurrection, he's walking on this road to Emmaus with some of his followers, and they don't know who he is, and he begins to share with them. And Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began to explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's very important in all the scriptures because we, we can't get into this trap to believe that, oh, it's, it's a few prophecies over here, and over here we see that Jesus fulfilled them. That's good. I believe in that. I believe in the prophecy. I believe Jesus fulfilled it, but it's so much more than that. He's the fulfillment of everything in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and, and on into 5. Have you ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Maybe some of you. It's an old movie. In the movie, Bruce Willis is a character, and I don't want to give away the ending, but Bruce Willis, is, he's dead, so i just dead. And there's this little boy, and, you know, he, he sees dead people, and he sees Bruce Willis the whole time, and you don't figure it out to the end, but there's this, oh, wow, moment. And then you want to go back, and you want to read the whole story again because it's so much more colorful and so much more interesting. You're like, wow, oh, that's where that happened. And stories like that are amazing. When we come into a relationship with Jesus, and we start to look at him as the fulfillment of everything. It totally changes the way that we read the scriptures all the way through. And it becomes so much more colorful and so much more beautiful. And then finally we get to chapter 5, and that's the church. And last spring I did a whole series on the, on the book of Acts called Improvise, and how Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and so go out and change the world. Make disciples, make followers. And that's what they did. They went out. Jesus poured their spirit out on them and gave them the ability and the power to go out and love people like never before. And they changed their little slice of the world. And God calls us to do the same thing, to change our little slice of the world, those 8 to 15 people that are kind of in our lives that we can affect. The reason why that moment with my daughter was so special was because I'm her dad. We're in a relationship together. And words have power, transformational power, in the context of a relationship. And that's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He's reached out to us. He's the living word. And he says, I love every single one of you. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the privilege to be able to dive in and the freedom to do that and the mystery of it. God, thanks that you didn't give us 
a document that was somehow some generic, whitewashed, cleaned up thing, but you spoke into the messiness of history through the lives of regular people like us. And you just help us along one step at a time. God, help us to see the things in Scripture that you want us to see as we study, as we give ourselves to you, and to live out the trajectory of redemption and liberation that you want us to live out. God, thanks for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen.